Thank you, Andy, for sharing our scripture reading with us this morning. As we enter into Ezra 8, we're in the home stretch in the book of Ezra. Just be a couple more weeks that we'll finish up this book together and then uh, be exploring some other things before we get into our Advent Christmas series uh, here in end of November. But um, as we come to Ezra 8, we need to recognize that as this chapter begins with a uh, a list of names, and and Andy was thankful I didn't have him read the first fourteen verses. They were even more complicated than the first than the ones he had to read today. Our, our elders will be glad we get out of the Old Testament for a while and all these these names. But uh, as we come to this this list, what seems very mundane to us, what we really need to recognize in Ezra chapter eight is that Ezra was facing an unfinished and seemingly impossible task. That's really what's happening here. If you really understand the gravity of what's taking place by this juncture in history, as we've come to the year 458 B.C., and Ezra is about to lead another group of Jews to leave Babylon, all of whom would have grown up in Babylon many of whom would have had businesses and homes and families in Babylon. But now the call has been issued that another generation would return to Jerusalem to continue the work of God there. Ezra was facing what, humanly speaking, was an impossible task. And I don't know if you have ever faced anything that seemed impossible I pray actually that you have because it's only when we face that which seems impossible that we get to see the good hand of God truly at work in our lives. When all of our obstacles are are able to be overcome by human means, we often miss the hand of God in our lives and I don't want us to miss that. And so once again we see three times in this chapter this reference to the good hand of God. And so we'll continue in that theme this morning as we see last week we saw the good hand of God was connected intricately to the people's taking hold of the good word of God. The hand of God and the word of God were connected so intricately in chapter 7. And, and this week we're going to see that the hand of God is intricately connected to the prayers of God's people. So we have the word of God and prayer. Once again, these what would have been called the twin pillars of the Christian life are connected here in Ezra 7 and 8. So our, our theme today will be one of prayer. So we can grasp the gravity of what Ezra was about to embark upon. I thought Warren Wearsby voiced this so well. He said, here were several thousand Jews inexperienced in travel and warfare, carrying a fortune. I did some math this week. The the fortune they were carrying was worth somewhere, I'm conservatively estimating, $200 million in treasure. Carrying a fortune in gold and silver, led by a scholar, that's Ezra, not a soldier, and planning to travel through dangerous territory that was infested with brigands, and yet their leader didn't want an army to protect them. They were getting ready to embark on a thousand-mile, four-month journey 
with no soldiers in their midst to protect him through some of the most dangerous territory that was known in those days. And their leader said no thanks to the offer of an armed escort. Now that sounds like foolishness, doesn't it? You're just asking for trouble is what we would say in our day. And yet I think Ezra understood that the promises of God remained in his day. Promises that had been made all the way back in the days of Moses were being fulfilled in Ezra's day. And he trusted more in the word of God than in the armies of man. As the psalmist wrote, some trust in chariots and some trust in soldiers. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. That was Ezra. And he was looking back, I believe, to the promise God had made in Deuteronomy chapter 30. As God is bringing his people into the promised land for the first time, he's laying out for them some of what's going to happen in future days and the fact that they were going to rebel against him and were going to face exile. And all the things that Ezra had seen in his distant, in his recent past were, had come to fruition. But he also knew there was more in the plan of God. Do we know today, church, that there is more in the plan of God that's yet to be unveiled? Deuteronomy 30 says, Return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And notice this. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is a place in Deuteronomy where Moses is showing God's people the blessings that would come from obedience to him and the curses that would come from disobedience to him. The blessings that would come from walking in his righteousness, the curses that would come from walking in rebellion against him. And here he's saying, but even when you rebel against the Lord, he knew it was going to happen. Even when you turn your back on him and the Lord has to bring his wrath upon you and you're scattered among the nations, you're carried off into exile. Even then, if you will return, if you will repent, if you will turn again to the Lord, he will be the one to regather you to this place. And that's what God was fulfilling in the days in which Ezra walked the earth. But it was all about the good hand of God upon his people. And so let's look at that again this morning. Three truths this morning related to what does it look like when the good hand of God is upon God's people? Well, first of all, the good hand of God will give God's people faith in God prescribed provision. We have, we have seen that all throughout this book. Ezra is an account of how God provided for his people every step along the way. How he gave to them daily bread as we see prayed for in the Lord's Prayer. How he provided everything that was necessary for the work that he had called them to do. And once again we want to say this morning. God has never called us to do anything that he has not also equipped us for. But there were some things that were lacking as Ezra prepared to take these several thousand Jews on this thousand mile journey to a place that none of them had ever been before. None of them had been to Jerusalem previously. They hadn't vacationed there. They hadn't journeyed there for any reason 
until now. But Ezra noticed as he began to gather the people at that river near this place called Ahava, as they were preparing to embark on that thousand mile journey, Ezra was taking note of something that there was something that was missing. There were no Levites among them. Now that may not mean much to us, but Ezra understood rightly that by the law of Moses, the Levites were the ones that were given some primary roles in serving God in the midst of his temple. So as Ezra is getting ready to go back to the temple in Jerusalem, he's getting ready to carry, to take along with him these several thousand Jews, this $200 million offering. He, he is going back there to do this. He recognizes there's something that's lacking. We don't have any Levites among us. Now, it may seem strange that he would be so wrapped up in this, but you've got to understand that the lack of Levites meant there would be a shortage of servants to fulfill the work of God. It's kind of like what Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so he calls upon his church to pray that the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest field to bring in those who have not yet received him as Lord and Savior. We are called upon to pray that the Lord would raise up workers. And Ezra here recognizes we need more workers. And so he begins to pursue these Levites. And there's all kinds of reasons perhaps why none of the Levites showed up. It, it does seem strange on one hand because these are the folks that are primarily tasked with service in the temple. So would they not want to go back and fulfill their calling? And yet perhaps, like so many of us, the Levites had grown comfortable in Babylon. In Israel, the Levites were not allowed to own property, but in Babylon, it was certainly different. In Israel, the, the Levites were tasked with, with service to God in a temple that was sometimes perhaps menial and sometimes perhaps burdensome and, and sometimes perhaps it, it just was something they wanted to, to shirk off. But in Babylon, they had a freedom that they had not had previously. There was a comfort in Babylon. There was a safety there. That's all these particular group of, of Jews had ever known. They had grown up in Babylon. Probably many of them intended to live out their days and to die in Babylon. And yet the Levites were not fulfilling the call that God had placed upon their lives. Many of us know what it's like to run from the call of God, to play the Jonah God has pushed us and pulled us and called us in a particular direction and yet we want to go our own way and do our own thing. And yet I love the fact that Ezra doesn't just go, oh well, we'll find somebody else to do the Levite's job. He pauses there at the river as they're about to embark. He takes a week's time to go and pursue some Levites to go with him knowing this is not an optional part of what we're about to do. I love what James Hamilton said. He said, how do you respond when people fail to do what they should do? Do you love God and your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to address their sin? It's not loving to let Levites linger in lethargy. It's not loving to let Christians wallow in sin. And yet we live in a day and age where we're so quick to run to the excuse of, well, that's not my business. 
If the Levites want to stay in Babylon, that's their business. I'm going to mind my own business and let them have their business. But what Ezra recognized is that in the family of God, that we are to be about the same business. And therefore, what happens in one part of the body affects the whole body. We see this all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New in the Old Testament days, when, when Achan decided to take some of the devoted goods from Jericho and hide them in his tent, it was a multitude of God's people that suffered for one man's sin. And in the same way, and you go into the book of Acts and you see a man named Ananias who chose to keep back from God some of what he had said that he had given to God. And then the judgment of God fell upon Ananias and his wife, but not just them. The Bible says that the whole church was in fear because of what had taken place. Brothers and sisters, do we not recognize that our sin doesn't just affect us? It affects others, and we ought to love one another enough to do as Ezra did here and to call one another out when we're not walking in the ways of the Lord. The Levites here were not just going to go and be a part of temple service, but they were also going to help in conveying this huge contribution uh, that the king of Persia and others had had put together again in uh, uh, a conservative estimate. We're talking about 200 million dollars worth of gold and silver that they were sending to to beautify the temple and to be used in the in the service of the temple. That's a lot of precious metal. That's a lot of weight. And, and it had to be entrusted to these temple servants because they were a, they were a holy group that was set apart for this particular work. And so Ezra's recognizing there's a practical issue here also. We need more Levites to help carry the load. And so he goes and searches them out. And it may seem like the returns are minimal, 38 you add the numbers together there, and it's just 38 Levites and their families that decide to make the journey back. And yet Ezra recognized it's enough. We now have some Levites. Now we can make the journey. And so they do, and they begin to walk that long road, that four-month journey back to Jerusalem. And certainly you can imagine what that must have been like, but I think Isaiah 40 describes it perfectly. And he says, even youths shall faint and be weary and young man young men shall fall exhausted but they who wait for the lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint and so we don't get any details of the actual journey we see the jumping off point and we see when they arrive in jerusalem all we know is that god answered their prayers and they were saved all that way God was faithful you see them praying you see God's answer everything in between wasn't worth recording and so Ezra leaves it out as God's people walked by faith in him waiting upon the Lord we're living in a season of waiting right now we are waiting for this pandemic to end we are waiting for the results of this upcoming election. We are waiting to see the resolution of the racial disharmony that has disrupted all of our headlines. 
There's so much waiting, and I don't know what you're waiting for personally right now, but take hold of this promise. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. As Paul would later write, his power is made perfect in our weakness, and sometimes waiting time leaves us feeling very weak and vulnerable. And yet it's in that very place that the power of God is often made manifest in our lives. And so we see the good hand of God giving God's people faith in his provision. But secondly, this morning, and really the core of what I want us to look at today is is there in, in verses 21 through 23. We see the good hand of God giving God's people fervency in God pursuing prayer. This is really at the very heart of the chapter that we're looking at this morning. That, that God's people are pursuing him in prayer. They're seeking not just a safe journey, they're seeking the face of God. They're seeking not just God's hand, they're seeking God's face. And that's the kind of prayer that I want to call us to in these days. That we would look not just for the end of a pandemic, but we would ask God, show us what you're doing in this pandemic. That we we would seek not just to have a certain person elected in next month's election, but we would ask God, would you so grip the hearts of those who are elected that your purposes might be accomplished in our day? A fervency in God pursuing prayer. And how how do we pursue God in prayer? Well, first of all, it begins with a posture that we see there in verse twenty one. And the posture for prayer is simply this. It's humility. We cannot pray as the Bible instructs us to pray short of true Christ-like humility. Humility, that others-centered mentality. Humility, that attitude which understands that rightfully we deserve nothing from God because of our sin against Him, and yet that understanding also that by His grace He has given us all good things. Humility is the attitude of God pursuing prayer. It's the posture by which we approach God. We come to Him recognizing that we are deserving of nothing and yet He has given us everything necessary for life and for godliness. He has given us everything necessary to do what He has called us to do. And so when Ezra approaches God with prayer and its companion of of fasting there in these verses, as he approaches God, he comes in humility. James 4.10 Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And folks, we live in a culture of self-exaltation. You don't have to look very far to see that. I hope you recognize the the intense temptation toward self-exaltation. That seems to rule and reign in social media today. Self-exaltation. And yet the Lord says, no, instead... May there be a humbling of ourselves. If there would be any exaltation, may it be the Lord's doing. The posture for prayer is humility. And then let's let's look for a moment just at a pattern for prayer. 
You see some elements of this here in Ezra's prayer, but even even more so in the coming chapters, as we're going to see uh, two more instances of Ezra's prayers in chapters nine and ten. But but a pattern for prayer that we see throughout the scriptures that I, that I just want to kind of lay out for us. That not just as we come in this posture of humility. Now, how do we actually pray? And here's a pattern, not the pattern, but a pattern for our praying. First of all, our prayers ought always to begin with praise. And I know if you're like me, sometimes we, we rush in to that place of prayer and we've got our laundry list of things that we need God to do for us. And, and we come quickly before his throne of grace with confidence as Hebrews encourages us to. But we forget that coming to his throne, we need to recognize that he's our king and he's worthy of our praise. And so we recognize here the call to praise God in our prayers, to recognize who he is as he has revealed himself in his word and to echo those things back to God. That prayer is an act of worship. Primarily, a prayer is an act of worship. We're recognizing our dependence upon God's sovereignty, his holiness and his unfailing love. So prayer begins with praise, but then it turns, as we see even more in the coming chapters, prayer often turns toward repentance. Prayer turns toward repentance, the confession of sin, the recognition that, again, we are sinners before a holy God, and our greatest need is His grace. Our greatest need is His favor and we come in that posture of repentance recognizing that we are not righteous in and of ourselves that any righteousness that we have is that we have been clothed in the righteousness of christ and so we come praying in a repentant spirit and attitude and then thirdly we come as the bible commands us again and again we come asking we come praising and repenting then we come asking he has commanded us that we would ask of him. He says, so often you do not receive. Why? Because you do not ask. And so we come asking, laying our petitions and requests before him. Ezra's entreaty was, Lord, we need your protection. If you don't show up on this thousand mile journey, we are certainly doomed. So we come asking. And we come asking boldly for those things which only God can accomplish. Once again, if we are only praying about things that just could as easily have happened as a result of man's intervention. Or perhaps coincidence or whatever we want to call it. Now we know it's all ultimately under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. But what are you praying for right now that if God doesn't show up and answer, it just ain't going to happen? That's the kind of prayers we're talking about. And then finally, if prayer begins with humility, I think it oftentimes needs to end in a place of yielding. This is that place where Jesus prays fervently, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will but yours be done and so we pray fervently for healing and yet in that prayer there's also a yielding father if if this illness will serve more to your glory than my healing 
that not my will but yours be done. We pray fervently for the restoration of that broken relationship. And yet yielding, we pray, Father, perhaps you would be doing something in the brokenness of this relationship that needs to be done. And so not my will, but yours be done. We pray for that promotion We pray for our child to come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray for the will of God. And yet if we are truly praying for the will of God, there must be a yielding to the will of God. Because there's a subtle temptation at times to transpose God's will for ours. Well, surely God must want this. And yet who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Prayer requires a yielding before the sovereign and holy God. And so the posture of prayer, a pattern there. And then finally there's the product of prayer. And we see it so beautifully displayed in verse 23. And I just want to read it again. So we fasted and implored our God for this. Ezra says we prayed. We asked God to keep us safe. And what was the result? And he listened to our entreaty. So simple and yet so powerful. The product of prayer is this. He hears us. He hears us and he answers us. And again, he doesn't always answer us according to what we would desire. So often the answers to prayer are very different than what we would have thought. I read an article this morning that was so encouraging in this way about a pastor in Bowling Green and their church had begun to diminish over the last several years. And his wife had prayed fervently and she prayed specifically that God would add 10 families uh, to their church over the course of the next year as they were just struggling to kind of make ends meet she prayed fervently god would you add 10 families to our church over the course of the next year and that was a big and bold prayer but it was answered in such a unique way as god brought into their fellowship not 10 families but 12 families who were Congolese refugees. And so a predominantly older, white, middle class, kind of typical Southern Baptist church is now about half and half folks from the Congo, impoverished refugees who were hungry for a place to worship the Lord. She had no idea what she was praying for. Did God answer her prayer? You better believe it. But did God answer her prayer in the way that she thought that he would? I can guarantee that wasn't what she was expecting. And yet both her and her husband in this article were praising God for what he was doing by bringing these folks into their congregation and and by completely changing the face of their church. Perhaps she thought that God would bring folks much like themselves, but he brought folks very different. And it's been a huge and unspeakable blessing. The joy of prayer is that God hears us. Second Chronicles 7, if my people 
who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's our part there. You see it? That's our part there. Then what? Then what God does? Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You notice he's given us a part to do, but he's also helping us to recognize there's a part that we cannot do. This is where Jesus got in trouble with the Pharisees at one point as he spoke over the lame man, not only get up and walk, but he said, your son, your sins are forgiven. And they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they got it right. They just weren't recognizing that God in the flesh was standing right there face to face with them. It's God alone who can forgive sins. It's God alone who can heal our land. Church, I pray that in these days we are not putting our hope in the possibility of a soon coming vaccine. I so pray that that's not where our hope lies. And I so pray that we are not putting our hope in a particular man to be in the White House come November. I pray that's not where our hope lies. Because if that's where our hope lies, if our hope is in a vaccine or a particular candidate, then I I truly believe this. We are going to be sorely disappointed even if the vaccine comes and our candidate gets elected. Because our hope is meant to be in Christ alone. He is the only surety that we have finally this morning we see god's good hand giving us faith in his provision a fervency in prayer and finally a fearlessness in god promised protection a fearlessness That exists among the people of God, not because they are great and mighty. They recognize very clearly there is no greatness or mightiness about us. But our God, He is great and mighty. He is worthy of our praise. And so we can walk in courage and in faith and and without fear because of Him. You see, it's God who draws us away from depending on the world. And he is continually, what was he doing in drawing these several thousand Jews out of Babylon? Ultimately, this is a picture of the walk of every Christian. It's what's described in, in one of the, the greatest books ever written other than the Bible. The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan describes the journey of the Christian. But it begins with this. We must depart from the world. And let me make sure that we understand. None of us would desire to leave Babylon and to leave the comfort and security of this world and go chasing after this crazy God who calls us to do crazy Crazy things. None of us would do that if the Spirit of God were not drawing us away from the world. None of us would desire that because Babylon is comfortable. And Babylon is safe. And Babylon seems to be a place of great security. But our God says, do not be conformed to this world. 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern that which is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And just as they did the character Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, the world will think you're crazy if you go following hard after Jesus. It won't make any sense because their mindset is so radically different. I'm sure there were those that looked at Ezra and said, what are you doing, man? You had such opportunity here in Babylon. You're one of the greatest scholars of your time. So many opportunities for advancement. It appears he was already one of the king's advisors. What, What are you doing leaving here to go to Jerusalem where it's not safe? There's no security there. I'm sure they said the same thing to Nehemiah. And just a few years from now, Nehemiah was going to lead another band of refugees to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls to provide security and safety. But but all along the way, as they're rebuilding those walls, they have to build uh, with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because it's so unsafe. And I'm sure there were many who said, Nehemiah, you've got it made here, man. You're one of the king's advisors. You're on your way up the ladder. Why would you leave all that? It was because of the call of God. It was because of the call of God. And the fact that God delivers those who depart from the world. There's a very real sense in which Ezra had absolutely nothing to fear in that thousand mile journey with that $200 million offering and that band of refugees, not a soldier among them. There's a sense in which Ezra had nothing to fear because if God is for us, who can be against us? And so we learn to pray in this way. Jesus said, pray like this. Let's read this out loud together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Consider just that last phrase as we close this morning. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we pray in that way, we hear Ezra saying, So you fasted and implored your God for this. And he listened to your entreaty. I don't know exactly what it looks like for you to pray today. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. I don't know what kind of evil that you might be facing. Perhaps it's that, it's that ground-shaking diagnosis. Perhaps it's continuing to walk through that valley of the shadow of death. Did you grieve the loss of a loved one? 
Perhaps it's internal anxieties and wrestlings and fears and doubts that seem to just assail you day by day. It's that that mental war that takes place in you again and again. And you've prayed for peace and you've prayed that God would deliver you and you continue to wrestle and to fight. Would we pray in faith today that our Father who is sovereign over all things, would give us the faith to trust Him even as we continue in the battle. Father God, we thank You for Your great grace. You are our Father. You are holy. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever your will is that which is most important and so father we pray that you would give us today daily bread that you would provide for our every need and that we would recognize you as our provider father we pray for your forgiveness Praying, knowing that because of the cross, it has been guaranteed to us. Because Christ died in our place, we can come boldly before your throne of grace with confidence. Knowing that our righteousness was but filthy rags, but his righteousness are robes by which we can enter in and dwell in your presence. So, Father, we pray for forgiveness, but we also pray that you would help us to forgive others. And, Father, this is so hard at times until we look to the cross and we remind ourselves of what we have been forgiven. Lead us in paths of forgiveness, Father, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one who with fiery darts would pursue us. We have an adversary like a roaring lion seeks to devour us. And yet the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome him. He is a defeated enemy. And we come this morning boldly by faith to declare that it is your kingdom and your righteousness and your holiness that are the desires of our heart. Lord, lead us to seek You. We ask this in Jesus' name.